a tiny little book, the fifth shortest in all of the Bible, 461 verses. It's towards the end of your Bibles, right before the book of Revelation. We're continuing a little mini-series here that we're called Held Fast. And to use a social media analogy, Jude is kind of the equivalent of the New Testament tweet, right? Short, powerful, trend-setting, a message to the New Testament church, a message to us, a call, if you were here last week, a call for us as God's people to contend for the truth. Now, in following this up in some conversations this past week, I understand this idea of contending can sound a little radical, right? A little alarmist, a little off-putting, a little like Jesus freaky, so to speak. And, and, and if that word contending sort of kind of makes us kind of get nervous or anxious about how we're engaging other people, maybe we have forgotten the nature of the conflict that we're in. It might be because we need to be reminded about who we are in this great battle. Now, I'm going to use a, a movie illustration as I've off to do. And so, again, one of those, those movies, if you happen to be scrolling through the cable channels mindlessly and you come across a few good men, you're always compelled to stop, right? You want to see Jack Nicholson burst a vein or something on his neck because we can't handle the truth or what have you. But, but if you're not familiar with the story, and sorry if this is spoiler alert, you're 25 years too late. It's about the trial of two soldiers who are stationed on the Marine base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And they are, they are separated from the sworn enemy of tens of thousands strong by a mere fence. And it's a story about how these two men are wrongfully accused of a particular crime. But, but in the movie, Demi Moore, who, who plays Lieutenant Joe Calloway, is asked, why do you like these guys so much? Why do you feel so compelled to contend for them, to fight for them, to, to represent them? And she had this really great quote. She said this. She said, because they stand on a wall and they say, nothing's going to hurt you tonight, not on my watch. Now, when I think about that, that statement, I mean, it just reminds me um, amazingly like the country we live in, the culture we live in, that most of us can sleep in relative peace tonight knowing that we are protected, knowing that there, there are police, there are law enforcement, there are military jet aircraft, there are satellites probably listening in on us right now. I mean, we, 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 we're amazingly protected sort of people. We are comforted by the fact that we can sleep at night. Someone is contending for us. Now, while that might be a great mindset when it comes to, like, physical safety, spiritually speaking, that mindset can be catastrophic. Because Jude wants us to be reminded who we are in this illustration. See, there is an enemy out there who is seeking to conquer, to devour, to distort, to destroy the truth, the truth once for all handed down to the saints of the church. But Jude wants to remind us this morning, Four Oaks, we aren't the ones in bed sleeping. See, we're the soldiers standing on the wall. We are the, be, the ones keeping watch, fortifying ourselves in the word, contending for the truth. 
And today, Jude wants to remind us what's at stake, and there is a lot at stake. See, this is much more than merely defending a a doctrine or a body of truth, although it's not less than that. See, Jude is going to tell us that what's at stake in this contending is, in fact, faith itself. That our souls, the souls of people we know and we love, are at stake in this great battle of contending. And so we're going to read verses 5 through 16 this morning in Jude. And I'm not going to have you stand. This is a kind of a, a, a little bit of a longer text. We're reading it all in one bite because it kind of all illustrates the same particular point. So I'm going to read it and then we'll unpack it together. We're going to begin in verse 5. We're going to flash the words on the screen behind us. Jude says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people... Blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Lord, there is a lot here, and this is a weighty text. And as your people, we need ears to hear. Lord, we need to be reminded this morning about who we are and the nature of the great struggle that we are involved in and what's at stake. So Lord, we we need your grace. We need your help. I need your help this morning to unpack this and to ultimately, Lord, we want to let your word have its way in our hearts. So Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, granted, let's be honest, right off the top, this was probably not your family devotional text last night at dinner, right? 
where you leaned over and said, son, don't be like Korah. The earth swallowed him up. Okay, that, that's pro- probably not. But we are going to talk about apostasy. That, in fact, the, the title of this mass message is Agonizing Over Apostasy. And just a disclaimer, because we've done this once already today in first service, this is a hard text. It is a weighty text. It is a, it's an alarming text on many levels, I want to be honest with you. But here's what I want you to hear from me as, as one of your pastors. That I want you to see that this text is actually God's grace to you. This text is God's grace to me. This text, while it may be hard, it is not harsh because it is love. It is full of God through Jude's tender care for God's people who are precipitously perched on the edge of a cliff but don't know it. And so see the grace of God in this text today, Four Oaks, as we unpack this. Four points all evolved around this idea of apostasy. So first of all, let's just talk about apostasy defined. What do we mean by that? The word apostasy comes from the word apostasia. It means to rebel against God. That's what the word literally means when it's used in the New Testament. But this is not mere rebellion. This is a complete and final rejection of God. Now, let me give you a little formula here to help you understand apostasy. All apostates, understand this, are unbelievers. But not every unbeliever is an apostate. And here's what I mean. Apostates are those category of unbelievers who have at one time professed faith in Christ. Maybe they were baptized. Maybe they spent their life in the church. Maybe they're sitting amongst us right now. But apostate is one who is part of the visible community of God only to walk away either physically, spiritually, both, and thus show themselves to really be unbelievers. This is who Jude is talking to. He's talking to those who are apostate, who are leading others astray, but he's also talking to those of us who might be being led astray, might be hardening our hearts, might be being deceived, and thus in danger of falling away. And, and, and then we're not talking about losing our salvation. We're talking about people who so resist the Spirit of God, even though they hear it over and over and over again, but they resist God, they do not listen to Him, they turn away from Him, And they can grow up in the church just as easily as not. And in the end, show that God's truth has never penetrated their heart to begin with. They might show outward signs. They might show certain peripheral fruits or surface fruits. But fundamentally, their hearts remain unaffected, unregenerated, and God leaves them alone. It's a terrifying prospect. And Jude gives us An example here, he gives us actually a functional definition of apostasy in verse 5. Look there. It says, Jesus, 
who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, let's just think about this for a second. The Israelites were God's chosen people, the people of God. He had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would inherit the land. He told, he told Jacob, even though he was going down to Egypt, in 400 years the Israelites would remain there. God said, I'll bring you out of Egypt as my chosen people. I'll bring you out to worship me, and then you will go into the promised land as my people. They were, these Israelites were the visible community of God. Now, let's think about the front row seat that they had on just some amazing things that God did in redemptive history. They saw all 10 plagues in Egypt. They actually got to kill a lamb and smear its blood over the doorpost and have the angel fly over their house and leave them in safety. They got to see Moses part the Red Sea. They didn't even have to watch the movie with Charlton Heston. They got to see the real thing. They walked through the middle of the Red Sea. They saw the Red Sea collapse on top of the Egyptians. They saw Moses come down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. God truly had saved them in a physical, political, national sense. But yet, what does Jude remind us of? They perished in the wilderness, the vast, overwhelming majority. Why? Because they were apostate. They did not believe. They had all the outward trappings and advantages of being the people of God. But it did them no good because their hearts remained unchanged. They fell away. You know, sometimes defectors to the faith leave the church. We all know people like that, don't we? Paul had somebody like that in his life. His name was Demas. He was, one of, he was like a son to Paul, one of Paul's trusted confidants. One of the last things Paul tells us in 2 Timothy is that Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Demas was an apostate. Sometimes apostates leave the church, but oftentimes they simply remain part of the visible church, going through the motions, reciting the creeds, attending Sunday school class, going to community group. But yet, they are what Jude calls godless. And that literally means without worship. Do you realize you can come in here week after week for your whole life in worship but not really worship? You can raise your hands, you can sing, you can confess, you can do all those things. But if you have shut out the voice of God, if you're no longer listening to God, you and I, are, if we're in that place, we're in a perilous position. That's why Jude is writing. The Israelites were apostates. That's what we mean by apostasy. Apostasy defined. Number two, apostasy demonstrated. So in a lot of ways, and I'll just give you the heads up, this is a, a bit of a longer sermon this morning, and um, we know it'll fly by, like it will be like nothing to you. And we'll get out and we won't beat the Baptists to lunch, but we might beat them to dinner. So let's just be comforted, be comforted by that. Won't be that bad. But Jude, in a lot of ways, could have left it there, and we could leave it here and say, that's what apostasy is. Don't do that. Don't apostatize. Bad apostasy. Okay, don't, don't, you know, we, we, we could, 
in one way we could do that, but that's not where Jude ends this. Jude knows that we're visual people, that we work with stories and examples, and he gives us six examples as a warning to us. Six examples from Israel's history. Now, in this, Jude mostly quotes from the Old Testament stories you're probably familiar with. He also quotes from the Apocrypha a couple of times. The Apocrypha is that intertestamental body of literature that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Jewish faith never accepted the Apocrypha as part of its inspired writings. The church never accepted um, the Apocrypha as part of its inspired writings. The Roman Catholic Church over the last 500 years has, has done so. But, but the history of the church is that we haven't identified these, these letters, these apocryphal letters, as inspired. So we have to ask, why is Jude quoting from them? Now, what's interesting about this is that what Jude doesn't do, oftentimes New Testament writers, when they quote from the Old Testament, they will see, say things like this, it is written, or thus saith the Lord. Or, or Isaiah said, or Moses said, or something like that. There is no reference to this because Jude clearly is not trying to give inspirational authority to the Apocrypha. What he's doing is that he's using an example from a body of literature, just like Paul does when he quotes Greek poets and others. There's other scriptural writers that do this too. He's quoting a story from their history that these Jewish Christians would have been familiar with. They would have heard that example and said, oh, yeah, 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 I've read about that. I, I've heard about that. It wasn't an aspired part of their writings, and so it shouldn't concern us too much why Jude is doing this. What should concern us is why and what Jude is wanting to communicate to us through these examples. And so here's, here's, here's how I want to walk through these. This will be kind of the bulk of the sermon. Obviously, it would take a, we could do a sermon on every one of these examples. But what I want to do is, in referencing these examples that Jude does, is to highlight a specific quality often exhibited by those who walk away from the faith. So in other words, if you're looking back on your life and you can think about so-and-so was walking with the Lord and they abandoned the faith or so-and-so at one time was a, was a professing Christian and now they don't seem to be interested in Christ, chances are one of these examples and, and the attribute that these examples typify will capture a lot of what's going on in that person's heart. Now understand the purpose of this exercise, it's not so that you can merely say, oh yeah, that's him over there. Or, yeah, you know, that's, that's Uncle Bob. I see him every Thanksgiving, and that clearly he, he's Balaam. Don't, don't call Uncle Bob Balaam. Don't do that. The, the, the purpose of this is for you to take a personal audit. To say, hmm, where in my own heart are these vices, these sins laying dormant? Or maybe they're not so dormant. Maybe they're great temptations. So that we can hear what Judah's telling us and to take heart and to be warned, and to turn to Christ, to turn to Christ. So this, is, this, this section is, is super heavy, and it's super weighty, but it's God's grace to us. The first attribute oftentimes identified by those who are apostate is that they are faithless. What do we mean by that? Well, going back to verse 5, we've already talked about this for a, bit, for a minute. We have to ask, how in the world 
can you cross the Red Sea and see God's faithfulness, but yet turn around and doubt his trustworthiness and thus show yourself to be apostate? See, the Israelites stopped trusting. Oftentimes, for the same reason that we stopped trusting. You see, we, see we, we, we know about God's faithfulness in the past, but when we look at our lives currently, we are discouraged or maybe embittered or maybe angry and say, I don't, God, I'm not seeing your faithfulness right now the way I want to see it, the way I need to say it, see it, the way, the way that I think you should be demonstrating your faithfulness to me right here, right now. It's not even on my radar. People stop trusting. They stop believing Look at verse 5. This is why Jude says, now listen, I want to what? Remind you. I want to remind you. Verse 17, but you must what? Remember. See, the antidote to faithlessness is remembrance. Is celebrating, enjoying, reminding ourselves of the goodness and grace of God in our lives. Because that's one reason the writer of Hebrews says, hey, do not forsake the assembling together. He's talking about coming together as God's people in our groups and our worship. He says, don't forsake that, lest your heart grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, a lot of what we do here on a Sunday is we're reminding ourselves. We're reminding one another. We're witnesses to God's faithfulness, his testimony, his grace. We're worshiping. See, when we, when we think about God's church, God's community as really one giant act of remembrance, it puts a whole different spin on things, doesn't it? So remember, a second reason, this is found in verse 6, that apostates fall away is because of pride. Now here, Jude uses the example of angels and demons. And we know from Revelation and sections of Isaiah that there was a time when the whole host of heaven existed in worship to God that Lucifer or Satan was the chief angel, but that one-third of the angels rebelled against God, followed Lucifer, and were thus assigned to change, condemned to a gloomy eternity apart from God in hell, but given for a season a time where they can exercise some dominion or authority. Now, now, why did this happen? Can you imagine you're on God's team? You, and, 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 and in somehow, some way, being deceived that there's something better out there? Or maybe they thought they simply deserved more. This isn't enough, God. We, we want planets to rule, or we want, we want positions of high status. They needed what we all need to be reminded of every day, and that's who we are. We need a God-given humility. See, a lot of times apostasy happens when we shake our fist at God and say, I deserve so much more. Instead of remembering that everything we have is by the grace of God. This is why... Remember, we talked about this last week. Jude refers to himself. Does Jude like puff his chest up? 
and say, here I am. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. Who's your dad? No, does he, does he do that? No, no, no. He doesn't even mention his relationship with Jesus. He says, I'm just a slave. I'm just a servant. Guys, there will be plenty of time in eternity to enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. For now, we are content. We are humble that God has given us everything that we need. A third reason, this is found in the next two verses in verse 7. Maybe the most common or one of the most common reasons that I've seen personally people walk away from the faith just plain old sexual immorality. Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced here. You, you probably familiar, remember the story. Rampant sexual immorality in that city. Homosexuality. So much so that God destroys that, those two cities to the ground, burns them to the ground. Do you know that this story is referenced no less than nine times in the New Testament? Nine times. So, so, so when you hear people say this issue of sexuality and gender is just kind of an Old Testament thing and New Testament doesn't speak about it, it's fundamentally not true. But there is a warning here and a point of remembrance for us. And this can be very difficult. This can be very difficult to receive this. But God's teaching on sexuality is, is very clear. We try to make it confusing. It's not really confusing at all. God made us either for a lifehood of singleness, of celibacy, and service to him, which is a glorious calling. It's an amazing calling. It's the calling of Paul. It was the calling of Jesus. Or he's made us to be in a monogamous sexual relationship with one person of the opposite sex for life. And one of the hard things about that particularly if you're in an unhappy marriage or you're being tempted in ways that you find difficult to resist, one of the attributes that you have to be reminded of that we have to be called to, I need to be called to, is this idea of submission. A lot of times there's just going to be certain issues in our life we're going to say, I wish it didn't say that, but God says it. It's a, it's a simple matter of obedience. Interestingly, I was talking to uh, a counselor who we refer folks to from our church from time to time, and we were talking about this issue of sexual immorality, sexual addictions, and, and how does he work with, with couples or men or women who have violated those conditions of their marriage and who have, who have wandered off, who have broken up their marriages, hurt or destroyed their families, I asked him, what's the most difficult thing about this? I really thought he might say something like forgiveness, restoration. He said, nope. The hardest thing, and he was talking about men in this context, the hardest thing in working with men in this is get them to admit what they really want. Because when you get right down to it, oftentimes they simply don't want to change. They love the enticement of sin too much. And while they may make a show of coming to to counseling and talking with their spouse and asking forgiveness, fundamentally in their heart of hearts, 
They think that there is something better out there. They don't want to let it go. Now, sometimes in the fight against apostasy, we have to trust God and simply submit to his word. As challenging as that might can be in certain situations. It's not what the men of Sodom did. And Jude warns us. A fourth reason. Greed. Greed. Greed is oftentimes a reason people walk away from the faith. If you look at verse 11... What's referenced here is the example of Balaam. Now, we don't have time to unpack that story, but fundamentally, Balaam was a pagan prophet who was hired by Moab to curse the Israelites. And it's a, and that's why here he says Balaam's error, I'm sorry, let me go back to them. The Lord rebuke you, but verse 10, but these people blaspheme all they do understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the, there it is, the sake of gain. Do you hear that? See, sometimes, and we said this last week, I'm not going to repeat it. Apostasy and affluence go hand in hand. You see, No one apostatizes because they think they're going to be worse off, right? That's never the case. Now, we may be deceived, but but we always think there's some trade-off. You know, if, if, if I pursue this course of action, this is going to benefit myself in these particular ways. Oftentimes, that way is simply pure old greed, the love of filthy lucre, as Peter says. That, that, that by, by trading in truth here, I'm going to gain acceptance to this group. Or this group's going to like me. Or, the, or these folks are going to accept me. Or, or I think my life is going to be just a little bit easier because of this thing or that thing. And the antidote to greed is always what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, is contentment. He said, if all we have is food and clothes, guess what? We're going to be happy. Because as Americans, let, let us really hear that. There is coming a day, and the day might, might be closer than we think, where we have to choose between faithfulness and mammon. Faithfulness and riches. Faithfulness and provision. A fifth reason, self-righteousness. We'll try to go through these a little quicker. This, this also in verse 11 involves Cain. Remember, God accepted Abel, his brother's sacrifice, did not accept Cain's. And it says that Cain was so distraught that he what? Killed Abel. Now, what do we see in this text about self-righteousness? See, apostates never look inward. They're always looking at the problems everyone else has. No, God, why, why, would, why would you accept Abel's sacrifice and not mine? Never pausing to ask what's going on in his own heart 
in repenting and turning and trusting in God, but instead blaming Abel. And then he kills him. What do we need as an antidote to self-righteousness? Simply put, we need sight. We need God to help us see who we truly are. See, it's going to be impossible to repent unless we see our sin for what it truly is. Last one, we'll move on. Power. We also find this in verse 11. talks about Korah's rebellion. If you forgot your Old Testament history and numbers, remember it's Korah and his men who led a rebellion against Moses. For the very reason it says here that they perished in Korah's rebellion. They were not content with the authority that God had given them. They were like, why does Moses get a front row seat to the tabernacle? Why does he get to handle the Ten Commandments? Why does he get to talk face to face with God? And so they rebelled. They thought they could do it better. And what does it say happened? The earth swallowed them up. And not just them, the 250 men, but their families, their wives, their children, their livestock, their possessions. It's a reminder, be reminded, apostasy never just impacts you. It always leaves a trail of destruction in the lives of the people that you really love. Your children, your marriages, your small group, the people who are connected to you. It's a tragic thing. Guys, there's no such thing as a private sin. There's no such thing as private apostasy. I know there are folks here in this room who can look back and still feel the sting of someone who walked away from the faith, who hardened their heart against God. Jude gives us these six attributes, not so that we can sort of be a worm and sort of huddle, you know, over in the corner and whimper. He does this because he wants to pour his grace out upon you. He wants you to be able to identify. He wants you to be able to identify those things in your own heart and by the power of the Spirit run to Christ and put them to death by his Spirit. What's the antidote, by the way, for power? In Paul Tripp's words, it is awe. A-W-E. You know, so often we find in the evangelical church just a dearth of of the attribute that we would call holy fear. That I am walking in the fear of the Lord. That that God is the sovereign of the universe, that he's coming back one day, that he is going to to judge the living and the dead. And because of this, I want to honor him, whether in life or in death. So Jude says, that's what apostasy can look like. That's where it can begin in your own heart. And now he just briefly wants us to turn our look outward and say, what does it look like out here? So apostasy deduced. This is the third reason. A reminder, and we, we talked about this last week, won't rehearse it again and again, but one of the reasons false teaching is so hard to fight and hard to recognize is because it's hard to detect. It sneaks in unawares. And he emphasizes this point again in verse 12 when he says, these are hidden reefs, and he's talking about these false teachers, at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. 
Now, the love feast in the New Testament was just, it was the time of worship for the church. The church would come together, they would eat, they would celebrate, they would take the Lord's Supper, they would worship, they would hear preaching. It was a sacred time. It was a time of peace, having peace with God, peace with one another. It was supposed to be a time of, it was a safe place where there was care, where there were gatherings, they take the Lord's Supper together. But it says that these men were like hidden reefs. Now, what, what, is, what is a reef? It's a rock formation that lurks underwater. Can't, not visible to the naked eye until you're what? Right up on it. And oftentimes when you've run into it. You know, back in the 70s, as a child of the 70s, the big deal was... Why are all these boats and planes and stuff disappearing from the Bermuda Triangle? Do you remember this, folks? And, and of course, it was UFOs. But, don't, but don't, don't email me about that. But, but recent studies have shown that there's, a lot, there's a lot simpler explanations. One is that around the island of Bermuda, which used to be a volcano, active volcano, has all these peaks on it, but, but over time they were worn down, and now all you have is the island of Bermuda, which is really the top of a volcano, and when they began to pinpoint all of the shipwrecks that had happened, it was amazing. Hundreds of them, little red dots all around this island, all around these, what? Hidden reefs. See, reefs lurk just below the surface. Reefs sink ships. Reefs are silent killers. So how do you recognize them? Look in verse 12. Jude says, get close. you got to get close. See, he talks about waterless clouds and fruitless trees in verses 12 and 13. Now, what is he talking about when he compares false teachers or apostates to waterless clouds and fruitless trees? What do these two things have in common? See, when a farmer from a distance would see a cloud and he needs it to bear rain to grow his crop, he's full of expectancy. It looks so good. Here comes this rain cloud. It's about to drop its its payload on the ground. It's going to grow. There's going to be great fruit from this. Or you're, or you're, you're planting your, your citrus grove and, and from a distance you're looking out and you can, and you can see the, the fruit hanging down and it's time for harvest. You know, it's going to be plentiful. It's going to be going to provide for you. But when you get closer, you realize, oh, that cloud is not one, that, that doesn't have rain. Oh, or that tree, it has rotted fruit on it, actually. It looks so good from a distance. But it took getting up close to see things for as they truly are. Beware the leader, beware the person who doesn't have someone close enough to be looking into their lives. It's also a warning for us that we cannot be people who exist independently, autonomously, and not have someone, some group, some spouse, some friend who knows what's going on really in our own hearts. See, if we take this stuff for granted, Jude says, waterless clouds, fruitless trees. He says, you can also identify them because they're like shooting stars and the foam of the ocean. Look back down at the, the text for a second. Verses 13. Now, now what, what is Jude saying here? Why can't you set your course by the foam of the ocean or a shooting star? Because it's fluid. There's no straight line. They're unpredictable. You can't set your course by them. 
There's nothing consistent. There's nothing steady. In fact, look at verses 8 and 10. Paul says false teachers are like dreamers. They're actually like animals. What's he talking about? False teachers oftentimes can make it up as they go. Whatever suits the fancy, whatever, whatever suits their whims, whatever the newest and the latest and the greatest way of doing things, understanding things, beware, beware when there is a new theology of sexuality or a new theology of salvation or a new theology of atonement or a new way to be looking at Paul. See, dreamers have no anchor point except what? Their feelings. This is what I, if I were God, this is the way I would do it. Well, thank you very much. We're interested in what God has to say here. Verse 10 sounds like strong language. It is, they are blasphemers, Jude says. Verse 16, grumblers, malcontents, boasters. Beware of leaders, and particularly in this internet age, beware of leaders, teachers, ministries that seem to be filled with nothing but drama. You notice that? There there are certain leaders, there are certain ministries, people of big influence, people who write books, people who write blogs, people who have radio ministries, but their ministries always are full of some sort of drama, and and not not the good kind of drama, right? You understand what I'm saying? They did this, or they said this, or they, or this financial thing, or that particular group, or that division. Jude says, beware. Beware. Uh, lastly, what is apostasy's debt? In other words, what, what is its payment? What is its wage? Verses 14 and 15 are very clear. What all six of these examples that Jude gives us have in common that we've looked at is all of them will be judged or have been judged by the righteousness of God. Verse 15, the Lord comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness and have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You get, you get the point? These folks are ungodly. Who are these folks? People in the church, people in the community, people on your blog site, people on your bookshelf. See, James reminds us that the worst judgment is reserved for apostates. Now, why is that? Why is the worst judgment reserved for apostates? It's because apostates abandon the faith after hearing the truth, after making a public profession, after being exposed to the truth. Their judgment, and we don't understand exactly what this looks like, will be worse. Listen to Hebrews 10. This is a hard text, but please listen. This is the writer of Hebrews. This is in your Bibles. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now here's the key verse, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, isn't it? That's Jude's warning for us. You say, but Pastor Paul, what is there to do? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be helpful for me right now just to say, wait till next week and come back and hear. I could do that. And that is true. But two things today. Two things. Number one, listen. Just listen. Whatever God is stirring up in your heart this morning, whatever, whatever thing he's exposing, whatever, whatever point of conviction he is bringing, listen. Hebrews 3, 7, 8 says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. In other words, like the Israelites did. Listen. And after listening, run right to Jesus. See, the apostate pays for their own debt. They pay for their own sin. And all of us if we don't see ourselves in some way in this passage, we're just lying. All of us are probably in some way, well, all of us certainly in some way are apostate little a, right? We, we struggle, we wrestle, we're, we're tempted, we're fighting. We need to know that Jesus paid the debt for apostates. Jesus died. He rose from the grave. And through faith, he gives us his righteousness so that we can fight against the sin in our own heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that it's Jesus who is holding us fast by his grace. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Run to Jesus. Where Jesus says we find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. You may say, Pastor Paul, I'm scared to death. Am I an apostate? No. Not if you can hear. Not if you can listen. Not if you're asking yourself that question. It's a sign that the Spirit is working in your heart, working in my heart, bringing us back to a place we contend for the faith, we hold fast the assurance that we have through our profession in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.